This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're continuing our conversation about conversion experiences by looking at Nick Flynn's poem, Harbor, the Conversion, which engages with the story of Paul, formerly known as Saul, as narrated in Acts of the Apostles. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jennifer, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm wondering if you would be the one to read the poem this time, reminding our listeners of of the poem or if they weren't here, letting them hear it for the first time. Absolutely, I would. Folks, this is by Nick Flynn. Harbor, the conversion. If this bowl is always empty, If it breathes, if it's a lung, if a horse can rise from the ashes. Saul was a sailor on the boat to Damascus. He did not know what he was. Paul turned to a voice. It rose up from the waves. It chained his boat to the darkness. A man finds ash, and he makes it a man. A horse finds ash in a horse. It lifts us. It holds us. It breaks us again. Scatter him into the harbor. Thank you for that, Jean. Absolutely. It was felt really good to read that. And I remember last time we said, we're noticing the central images where we left off in episode 13. We were just noticing the central images, ash, horse, chains, darkness, sailor, boat, waves, harbor, (laughs) of course. And ashes, that's such a resonant, such a multivalent image. By multivalent, I mean it just has so many meanings, means so many things at once. And I'm sure you'll have more to add about this, but we know from the Hebrew Bible that ashes appear 
very often in the Hebrew Bible from the start, right there in Genesis, through the prophets, in so many books, in the histories, chronicles. And in the Hebrew Bible, ash can be associated with mourning, like sackcloth and ashes, right? Mm-hmm. He wore, he put on sackcloth and ashes. It's what, if you were an ancient Jewish person, that's what you would put on to grieve. Like, mm-hmm. I went mm-hmm. to a funeral recently and I put on black, but in the ancient world, I would have put on sackcloth and ashes. But, but also repentance, meaning mm-hmm. turning, mm-hmm. making a turn. Also just humility. I'm thinking of Job. Well, I'm, I'm just dust and ashes. So just an expression of humility and just kind of lowness, like feeling low down. But also worship prayer in numbers, in Leviticus, in the sections that deal with ritual and in the priestly concerns about how to sacrifice, how to conduct a ritual. There are actually a lot of instructions about what to do with the ashes. You would find a lot of ashes near an altar because in the ancient world, people are worshiping and praying partly by sacrificing an animal and burning it up. Primarily that way. Yes. Yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of ash. So that's associated with the altar and with worship. And it just occurred to me, too, this is maybe a little weird or macabre observation, but it's a transformation. Ash is exactly. transformation also. If you take an animal, this is the gross part. I mean, if you take an animal, you slaughter it and you burn it up, it changes yeah. form. So, mm-hmm. uh, or wood. I mean, if you're burning wood, right, you have a campfire and you're burning it up. It's a little more mm-hmm. pleasant image and turns into ash, but it's always a transformation. Ash signifies transformation. And uh, we'll talk about the other images. We'll get to that and we'll talk about some of the passages. But I just wondered, if there was anything you wanted to add about what resonance ash has for you, what comes to your mind with that image? Right. I think you have touched on the associations I have with it. Primarily, I do think of it in this, at least within the biblical context, as a form of mourning. Or I also, you had written in our notes, uh, reference to Tamar when she is... Unfortunately, when she is raved by a half-sibling, right, her response is um, a form of mourning her not <laughs> her physical state because of that and how that's going to affect her life moving forward, we could just say for now. But I think you, I, I like the point you're making about it's also its association with worship and this, it's what's left over from that act of worship for people in the ancient world because it was the primary form of worship was sacrificing things, not just animals, but also goods. So, you know, grains and pouring out oil and things like that. But as Nick Flynn's poem brings to mind for us both, and I, I'm assuming for those listening to it, right, this is an element of a phoenix even <laughs> yes. right? rising from the ashes, something coming out of or new birth or something new, a shift, a transformation, which I'm rather fond of that right now. <laughs> yes, yes. Me yeah. too. I, I am as well. Well, I would like to share a few passages from the Bible, first the Hebrew Bible. I think maybe maybe these are all Older Testament. I want to share a few passages that have ash. There's no way we could do all of them because there are just so many. But in Genesis 18, chapter 27, Abraham says, Let me take it upon myself to speak to my Lord, I who am but dust, 
and ashes. And there I feel like ashes is signifying just kind of that feeling of lowness or humility, like I'm just this man, this little guy, and I'm, but I'm nevertheless going to talk to my God. So there's one. And here are a few that are associated specifically with mourning. In Esther chapter 4, verse 1, when, and this is a direct quote from the chapter, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud and bitter cry. To me, I feel like that's the kind of classic way that I see it, or maybe I most often see it or associate it with this. Yes. And it also happens in something very similar in Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. goes like this. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So those are the classical images of mourning and grief. I would say also and repentance, turning, turning from one way of doing things and and starting to do things another way. And it's very clearly linked with repentance in book of Job, chapter 42, verse 6. Job says after he's been scolded a little bit by God, (laughs) (laughs) and he has a kind of epiphany of some Mm -hmm. kind. He has some kind of epiphany, understanding, or shift. And he says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So all of those things, I mean, I think that's probably enough ashes, (laughs) um, references from the Older Testament, but it's, it's resonant in so many ways. And we'll want to talk about, like, how do all of those things, humility, grief, mourning, turning from one life way to another life way, like how do all those connect with conversion experiences? And we can, we can come back to that because I know we're going to be talking more about these mental shifts, mental or spiritual shifts, like conversion as a mental or spiritual shift or a change of life way. And so we'll come back and talk a bit more Unless you want to jump in, I, I would talk about some of the other imagery, but I want to make sure you can get a word in edgewise. <laughs> I appreciate that, but I'm not sitting here chomping at the bit to make a horse reference. Um, <laughs> I think you, sorry, that was a, anyway. Just uh, happens. No. Yeah, it does. I, no, I appreciate the way you address that. All right. I think it's, well, yeah. oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm chomping at the bit. <laughs> No, I think we could we can move on to okay. the other the other pieces of this that yeah. we wanted to address. Yeah. I don't know about for you, but horses for me they certainly evoke strength and glory and power. The horse is such a powerful animal. And you could see that when you look at it. It just ripples with muscle. And um, I have a brother who has a draft horse, a Belgian. And what this horse can pull and carry is unbelievable. And at country fairs, they even have contests where horses pull really, really heavy things to see which is the strongest horse. So horse for me, (laughs) 
connotes strength and glory and power. But I do also want to mention that in the history of literature and painting, horses are associated with really dramatic spiritual experiences. And in episode 13, we talked about the Caravaggio painting and Paul's conversion experience is pictured with a horse in it. And of course, the horse is in the most dramatic pose. It's like very strong and it's rearing back. And so there is a history in art and literature of associating horses with really powerful changes. And the other two examples I would point out, I know when we first talked about doing the Nick Flynn poem, I shared this with you, that both Dostoevsky and Friedrich Nietzsche had these huge, huge, huge spiritual slash psychological experiences when they encountered a horse being beaten. And there's a lot of documentation that suggests that this happened to them both at about the same time, which is really Mm. weird. It's Mm -hmm. a weird Mm -hmm. synchronicity. But Nietzsche was profoundly affected by seeing someone beat a horse, and he intervened. And Dostoevsky also was, and they write about it at, at, at length. And so I will put some references on our website if people want to look into that but I feel like there's shades of that in the Nick Flynn poem as well. And didn't you reference someone from the ancient world whose horse we know by name? Yes. Bucephalus? Bucephalus was the horse of Alexander the Great. (laughs) I guess whether you think Alexander was great really depends on your perspective. Exactly. Yes. He certainly was a powerful military commander, and he definitely knew how to destroy a city. And he he left a mark in lots of ways on the ancient world. Yeah. He did. But the fact that we know the name of his horse says something about humans' perception of horses, a connection to them, or maybe even, if I could say it, reverence of them over the centuries. Yes. Yes. I think so, too. And when I think of Native American culture, the horse is a figure that is adored and worshipped and deeply integrated in with the life of the village. And I think the horse spirit and the human spirit are thought of as connected. Of course, there's a different cosmology and a different sense of the connection between animals and people in Native American culture, but horses are particularly connected to the individuals who ride them. The last one I want to mention before we move on is that image of harbor, which I I feel like it's really obvious, right? A, a, A harbor is evoking safety, shelter, relief. I mean, that's where we take shelter. Okay, let's go to a break. back into this, I want to call out my favorite lines. I think always in working with a poem, it's nice to call out favorite lines or favorite stanzas. And I love this. Saul was a sailor on the boat to Damascus. He did not know what he was. Paul turned to a voice. It rose up from the waves. It chained his boat to the darkness. I love it. I love how it blends two stories because 
I mean, in the act story, obviously, Paul's not in a boat on the road to Damascus. <laughs> He's walking there like everybody right. else. Right. Maybe he was riding a horse. We have no idea. Right. We have no idea if he was ever there, if he ever did it, right. come to think of it. But in the story, right, he's not a sailor in a boat. But it's interesting because what the line seems to suggest or what it suggests to me is that when we're having a conversion experience, when we're having a major shift in perspective, when we're changing from one life way to another, we're not in control. A sailor in a boat is not in control. And the shipwreck story in Acts is about sailors who cannot control what's happening to them. They cannot control the wind. The wind comes, their boat is going to go. Where the boat is going to go, the sailor just has to survive it. So that's how a conversion experience is being presented in this poem as an experience where you're not in control, you don't know exactly what's happening, and you're trying to survive it. And then just these last two lines, Paul turned to a voice, it rose up from the waves, and then it chained his boat to the darkness, turning to a voice that's kind of mm -hmm. rising up from something. Yeah. It suggests that in a conversion experience, we start listening to something. We don't know quite like what it is, where it's coming from, but we're kind of listening to it. We hear it, maybe don't know what to make of it, but there it is. And it, and this is the voice, I mean, I take that pronoun, to refer to the voice. It chained his boat to the darkness. It's like the boat of self, right? right. You start hearing a voice and you start <laughs> listening and that's going to chain your boat of self to the darkness. You're not going to know what is coming over you, what's going on, like you're just in it mm -hmm. and you hope to survive it. And then you think about, okay, well, what was that, right? Right. As well as this idea of this voice coming up from the waves, I think of the kind of the chaos and being tossed and turned or to and fro in the midst of waves is often where we are when in, in the midst of a change, right? Or out of which comes a big change. Not always, but sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in literature, waves, ocean, water, those kinds of images evoke vastness and mystery and rebirth. Virginia Woolf has a novel hmm. entitled The Waves. Hmm. Gosh, waves and ocean and water are central images, I think, in pretty much all Virginia Woolf novels, which are about discovering a, a woman discovering who she is, a woman discovering what social pressures are driving her. And of course, there are so many associations in, in literature with waves and ocean and water, but they always evoke, well, just to work the metaphor, being out of your depth, just mm -hmm. being out mm -hmm. of your depth. So mm -hmm. listen, I don't want to leave this conversation about the Flynn poem and acts without circling back to the conversation about the anti-Judaism you specified last episode. It's not, not, not exactly anti-Semitism. That's not quite the right term, but an anti-Judaism in Acts. Can you share a bit about that? Because that, that might be news for some people. Exactly. I think it will be news for some people. And let me clarify briefly why I prefer the word anti-Judaic or anti-Judaism to anti-Semitism. The word anti-Semitism 
the word Semitic there is actually a descriptor for a category of languages. So that would include Arabic and Aramaic and, you know, of course, Hebrew. I'm not trying to suggest we do away with the term entirely of anti-Semitism because it has meaning in our culture. But especially since we're talking about first century texts, it's a it's a moment to have this. All right, let's be clear about this. I think I have two different ways I wanted to get at this issue of the anti-Judaic nature of the book of Acts. And one is just to point out and maybe refer to briefly, maybe read a couple verses from Acts just so our listeners can hear it. But it's it's almost difficult for me to do it justice because there are so many, almost like there's so many small jabs that are at work to develop this theme or this this element of what the content we find in the book of Acts. But we see it in, we hear it almost right out of the gate, which is why it's really interesting, as early as the second chapter. In fact, after the story that we refer to as Pentecost, so after the narration of this miraculous uh, vision and experience for many of the followers of Jesus, we have Peter offering a, a short speech and this isn't the time to discuss speeches in the ancient world, but we have, you know, it's a very long kind of retelling of history as Peter is interacting with other Jews or Israelite, as they're referred to here, Hebrew people. So starting in chapter two of Acts, I'm, I'll read just a few verses, 22 to 24, and then skip down to verses 32 to 36. And I think this will be enough just to give you an idea. So we have Peter saying this to fellow Israelites, listen. To what I have to say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves knew, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law, but God raised him up having released him from the agony of death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Before I move on, let me just clarify, right? This man handed over to you. We could debate the definite foreplan or foreknowledge of God here. I don't want to get into that. But Peter is a Jewish man speaking to other Jewish men, and he's saying, you crucified and killed him. And it's actually a misrepresentation of things to say by the hands of those outside the law, because Jesus was killed. If there was a guy, Jesus, who was executed, he was executed by the Romans, and that is not outside the law. That's the very epitome of them living according to the Roman law. So one of the things for me as a biblical scholar and as a person who cares about what communities of faith do with these scriptures is we have misrepresentations of things at times, and this is one of those. But please don't miss that Peter is putting the blame and on other Jews and it, in a move that separates himself from them, even though they are of the same group of people, right? And then moving down to verse 32 of that same chapter, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, end quote. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. So, yeah, I mean, Peter's bringing in a reference to their shared divinity, saying that their shared divinity made Jesus Lord and Messiah, which is quite a claim for a Jewish man to make, and then reminding everyone that you all killed him. And there's a lot to be, there's more to be said about that language and the specific labels being used. And I actually would, we can put this in the notes, but I would recommend Shelley Matthews' book, one of her books on the language in the book of Acts. If you want to read more, I'll get the specific title for that and put that in the notes. So we have this narrative and in the similar kind of a language of differentiating between the followers of Jesus who are Jews in the book of Acts and then all these other Jewish people there's a there's a separation there's a we all have the same ancestry you know but we're different we're the right trajectory of Judaism you all are the ones who have gone awry or something like that and we see that in speeches several speeches by Peter we see it in the speech by Stephen we see it in comments by Paul and we see it in comments by the narrator describing what's happening in multiple places in the book of Acts so this is to me very unsettling because I know that so many people who mean well trust the book of Acts as being accurate, as accurately depicting what happened, as accurately describing God or an accurate description of <laughs> these other leaders of Jews who are being described as being terribly awful and sinful and cruel. And so, it, yeah, people, many people just don't see it or hear it, or as you were suggesting earlier, as you and I talked, just aren't even aware that this content is in there. Yeah. And that content, specifically the passages that you read in the Middle Ages, became what we call a blood libel. And I don't even think I could say it out loud because it sounds like saying the N-word out loud to me, but this idea that Jewish people killed Right. That's I I don't even want to finish it. I don't like to say it, but um, but that's the blood libel. And it's been used. It was used beyond the Middle Ages to justify persecution and genocide toward Jewish people. So we couldn't overstate the damage that this kind of language has done. And I wanted to ask you, Jennifer, I know that there's a common understanding Reza Aslan talks about it in his book, Zealot, and I know there are scholars who also talk about it, that one explanation, not an excuse, but an explanation for why Paul distances his own position from that of some of his fellow Jewish people is because the Romans had just put down they were they were looking at Jewish rebellions i mean rome was occupying jerusalem right the political context really matters here rome is occupying jerusalem there are groups of jewish people i think it's probably accurate to call them like insurrectionists jewish fighters right they're trying to take jerusalem back from rome and rome is trying to put down the rebellion we know that in 66 of the common era that there was actually a successful rebellion and Jewish people were able to retake the temple, which symbolically means that they retook Jerusalem. And in 70 of the Common Era, when Rome crushed that rebellion, it was horrifyingly violent and total and horrendous. And 
So this conflict is in the background. I mean, if Paul, as a Jewish person, wants to be speaking and doesn't want to die, he has to distance himself from other kinds of Jewish people. Like, is that a fair way to describe the historical and political context? I do think so. I would like to make one small caveat or shift there in what you said, and that is how Paul is being depicted. Because the genuine Paul spoke prior to the destruction of the temple in 66. I think he's actually probably dead before the destruction of the temple. So yes, he's being depicted being very, very politically savvy in his words, as are Jesus' other followers. The book of Acts, it's debated in terms of when it was written. Some say in the 90s, the scholars I'm more familiar with, such as Shelley Matthews, suggest it's not written until 125. So it's written much later. Much later. Many ideas have developed, yes, by the time it's written. Thank you. I also, yeah, I also wanted to return just briefly to your comment about the blood libel from the Middle Ages and say, unfortunately, there's a sermon in the mid-second century where, where Jews are first named as, quote, killing God, mm. right? Because they are blamed for the execution of Jesus. I think this is important because it's a part of a, an Easter sermon. There are people who still refer to this today yes. in their church context. So I, I just want to say it has been there from the beginning of this development of what became Christianity. Not that all Christians see it this way, but the ideas are in the scriptures and they came out in the preaching and the teaching and the commentaries and the explanations of the faith very, very early on. Yeah, thank you. As a person who identifies as Christian, it's really important to me to know about that because I don't want to replicate that. And I also want to work to address the harm that has been done by scriptures that, that I do hold sacred. So, of course, I want to address it and I don't want to look away from that. In terms of the harm that's been done by this vein of thinking in Acts and also in other Christian writings, can you talk to us about Pam Eisenbaum's experience. We talked about this when we were preparing, and I think our listeners would want to know. Thank you. I think so, too. And it's interesting because I hadn't thought of this as I was referencing the Easter sermon. We can, again, share a link to that if you'd like. I'd like to read briefly from her the introduction to her book. And what's interesting to me is the way this pulls together many of the things you and I have talked about in this episode and the previous one in kind of an interesting way, perhaps. But so just to be clear, Pamela Eisenbaum teaches at ILIF, at least at the point in time that we're recording this, teaches at ILIF Theological School in Colorado. And and she is a practicing Jew. She's a Jewish woman. And the book I'm reading from is called Paul Was Not a Christian. And I, the, the subtitle, The Original Message of a Misunderstood Apostle. There's many things I could say about this. Um, one is that just the title itself is appalling to some biblical scholars. And I am of an ilk um, that I embrace this and welcome this idea and what her, her perspective offers. So let me share. I just want to read about a page of her introduction because I think it shows part of what I'm trying to highlight here about the way the narrative of Paul's life has been imp- 
powerful for others, this belief that there was a dramatic shift. We get some of this from Augustine and his, his confessions in terms of how Augustine tells his story, drawing on Paul, so forth. So here's from Pamela Eisenbaum's introduction. Once when visiting a large, wealthy metropolitan church on Easter Sunday, I listened to a man give a testimony about his conversion to Christianity. He spoke of how he yearned for spiritual meaning and sought eagerly for religious truth throughout his life. Parenthetically, he seemed to me to be on the young side of middle-aged, but was always disappointed with the answers given to him. That is, until recently when he discovered Christ. Suddenly, he realized his former life was a life of sin. Before his conversion, he explained, he had been Jewish. But now he had accepted God's unconditional loving act of grace in Jesus Christ and had given up the sin of Judaism. Admittedly, I can no longer remember the details of the man's speech, which was rather lengthy, but I am certain he associated, if not equated, a life in Judaism with a life in sin. When he began to speak of his sordid past, I was expecting something more stereotypical at least what I imagined to be stereotypical, of Christian testimonies in the American Protestant evangelical context. I thought he would say that he had been an alcoholic or a drug addict or had abused members of his family or had been obsessed with money and prestige and lived a vain, empty life. But he never mentioned any of these things. His description of his former so-called sinful life sounded perfectly respectable to me. The mention of the words Judaism and sin in the same sentence came as a painful shock, to say the least. As a Jew, the idea that Judaism is a flawed religion inherently linked to sin is deeply offensive. Unfortunately, this idea has been linked to the Apostle Paul, but it really comes from a long history of Christian interpreters of Paul. While Christians of virtually every stripe, Catholic and Protestant, mainline and evangelical, now willingly accept that Jesus was a Jew, Paul is typically viewed as the first true Christian. The image of Paul as the first true Christian also requires him to be the first true convert to Christianity. The traditional story of Paul looks something like this. Paul was originally a zealous Jew who was persecuting the church until something utterly miraculous happened. The resurrected Jesus appeared to him. This revelation led to Paul's conversion from Judaism to Christianity, from being a zealous Pharisee to being an unstoppable preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once converted, he realized the futility of Judaism with its endless demands of the law and rejected it. And she goes on, but that piece to me um, kind of encapsulates the pieces that I often hear from Christians or from people who grew up in a Christian context and still have these ideas essentially running through their mind, even if they're not aware of it. Mm. So yeah. anyway, that, yeah, thanks yeah. for letting me read that. Ab absolutely. That is very helpful. And it does pull together so many threads of our conversation. To bring it back to the poem, I, I feel like the poem encourages us to think of conversion more broadly than the way it's typically talked about in at least conservative Christian circles. As you know, 
I've been a Quaker, I've been a United Church of Christ person, and now I attend an evangelical church. And so I hear that rhetorical formula quite often. It's a version of, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was this, and now I'm that. Before I knew Jesus, I blank, and now that I know Jesus, I blank. And I've always really had a hard time trying to, I've tried actually to see, can I come up with anything that like fits that formula so that people will understand me? And it's very difficult. Like the best I could do is I once used to be completely and utterly selfish, self-focused and just absolutely aggressive about getting whatever I wanted. And now I am more focused on other people. I have less selfish desire. I consider other people's needs way more. But it's like, that's that's not a good story. Like, who right? Like, that is just not clear enough. So um, it's very hard to fit that formula. But what I wanted to say is we actually don't, like, nobody uses that formula in Quaker tradition or even in United Church of Christ tradition. That's really specifically an evangelical rhetorical yes. convention because exactly. I never even considered it in my 20 years as a Quaker, 10 years as a United Church Christ person. So exactly. it's, it's very specific. And the poem invites us to broaden that and to think of conversion as any kind of big shift. I mean, it can be a spiritual shift. It could be changing from being an omnivore to a vegetarian or t- shifting from being a vegetarian to an omnivore, which happened to me, by the way, shifting from being a vegetarian to an omnivore. And I won't go into that story. I, knowing so many intellectuals, I know people who started out as Marxists and now they're not. They realized, yeah, the revolution is not going to happen and capitalism is just not going down. <laughs> Conversely, uh, I've seen people pretty high on capitalism and then realize, oh, whoa, we can't just keep doing this to the climate, right? So there are shifts in perspective all the time, intellectual ones, spiritual ones, and also what I would call a shift in life ways. I'm used to doing it this way, and then I decide I'm, I'm just not going to do that anymore at all, mm-hmm. and I'm going to adopt this new life way. I know you had a shift. You had an intellectual, I mean, can we call it an intellectual conversion with regard to Paul? I did, although I, I think... I think what I had happen was more of a, I used to think Paul was great when I was um, an evangelical person. I started studying more academic ideas about Paul, and that started to raise some questions. I discovered a couple pieces of scholarship that I thought were trustworthy that helped me with the category of talking about Paul and his the way he treats women or addresses women. So a lot of people think of Paul as being a misogynist, for instance, as a, just to boil it down. And there was a part of me that wanted to defend him because I thought, well, there's some parts in Paul's letters that are really not that. And he's actually, def- he's actually empowering for women. And then I had this, and I published with that in mind, defending Paul on his in his address to women, especially in the letters of Corinthians, one and first and second Corinthians. And then I had to take seriously um, another scholar's significant contribution to the field of biblical studies, Antoinette Clark Weyer's book, The Corinthian Women Prophets, where she dive she dives into some of the problematic or tricky passages related to comments to women. And so I went from publishing 
in biblical studies defending Paul <laughs> to needing to address my former comments about Paul and needing to find ways to rectify, essentially, from my perspective. This is what I used to see or think and believe and needed to make sense of everything this way. And now I see it differently. And it's important to me to try to say that to people because people do care what Paul said. And in particular, people tend to care what he said about women and with good reason, I would say. I'm not sure if that's a smooth, sweet story, but. I think that's a pretty I, good story, Jennifer. I really do. Okay. And okay. to me, what it shows is that you changed your mind. And we can change our minds. I think you're modeling epistemic humility here. I think when we, I think of that little button, right? How do I know I have a mind if I can't change it? (laughs) So thank you for modeling that for all of us. It's been great talking with you as usual. Likewise. Yeah, let's let's connect again. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 14 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. We'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.